Let us then return to Numbers chapter 29. We might choose a text this week, one verse, verse 39. Numbers chapter 29 and verse 39. These things ye shall do unto the Lord in your set feasts, beside your vows and your freewill offerings, for your burnt offerings and for your meat offerings, and for your drink offerings, and for your peace offerings. These things ye shall do unto the Lord. The title I wish to give to our our meditation tonight is Joy in Believing. And I want to expand on that theme as we go through. But the theme is, or the title of the psalm is Joy in Believing. Last week we looked at chapter 28, which dealt with the the daily, the weekly, and the monthly sacrifices. And it also dealt with two annual religious events that dominated the nation. The first of these annual events was the Passover. And that marked the beginning of the nation's religious year. And it did remind them of the great deliverance that the Lord undertook for them when they were taken out of Egypt on their way to the promised land. And that uh, event took place in our calendar year, March or April. And after Pentecost, after Passover, uh, 50 days after the Passover was Pentecost. And that is also called the the Feast of the First Fruits. And that will be held in our time around May and June. And we noticed last week as we looked at chapter 28, that basically all of these uh, sacrifices and the two annual events were primarily designed in order that the worshippers, that is, the people of Israel, could know and experience communion with God. And that is a theme that we will find in chapter 29 as well. And some commentators will put these two, two chapters together. And that is certainly a theme that we find in these two chapters, how sinful mankind can have communion with the one true and the living God. But we particularly want to focus upon chapter 29 this evening, because in this chapter we have the three annual Jewish feasts. And we notice, first of all, that they were all held in the seventh month. The first one on the first day of the month the next one on the tenth day, and the next one which lasted uh, from one Sabbath to another Sabbath began on the fifteenth day of the seventh month. And the seventh month corresponds to our uh, September and October. And I'm not going to go into the details of the feast. Rather, I want to extract some personal application for us here in the 21st century. But I do want to just outline the three feasts that are mentioned in chapter 
29. From verses 1 to 6, we have the Feast of Trumpets. And the trumpet was blown on the first day of the seventh month, and it marked the beginning of a new civil year for the nation. The next feast is recorded for us in verses 7 to 11, and it is the Day of Atonement. And this is Israel's highest and holiest day. And this was a unique day in the life of the nation. The high priest, he went into the Holy of Holies with sacrificial blood and incense. And he, and he alone did this to make atonement for the sins of the nation and importantly also for his own sins because he was a sinner. And this was something that was only done once in the year and it was performed by the high priest. And then the other great festival was the feast, the feast of tabernacles. And that is recorded for us here from verses 12 to 39, which takes up the bulk of the chapter. And here it's a joyful harvest festival, which lasted, as I said earlier in my introduction, from one Sabbath to the next Sabbath. It was over eight days. And during that period, some 200 sacrifices were offered during that eight days. That then is a very brief outline of these three annual feasts that the people were asked to remember by the commandment of the Lord. And the last feast regarding the Feast of the Tabernacles, what was the purpose of that? Well, it was to remind the Jews of God's goodness and his provision and his faithfulness to them. There was one thing that marked out the Feast of the Tabernacles. There, when they observed this feast, they would construct booths made from branches and parts of trees they were very temporary accommodation for them that they resided in during the eight days of the festival. And it was to remind them of their wilderness wanderings. And it was to remind them how good God was that he took them through the wilderness and ultimately brought them into the promised land. But of course, it was also to remember those who took part in this uh, Feast of the Tabernacles that even when they were in the promised land, they were to look past the fact that God had brought them into the earthly promised land, and they were to realize there was another land, another promised land that they should aim for. The earthly promised land pointed ultimately to heaven itself. And although they might be in the promised land physically, they were to make sure that they will be found in the heavenly promised land. Hence, why they stayed in these makeshift booths during the eight days of the festival. Well, as I said, I would like to draw one or two uh, practical lessons for us from this chapter. The first one I have 
readily acknowledge to you is a repetition. But I think that's obvious. Because what do all of these sacrifices teach us? Can you imagine what it was like, particularly there in the, in the seventh month, not considering the, all the sacrifices that were mentioned in chapter 28, but all of these sacrifices, they all involve blood. They all involved bloodshed. They all involved death. And surely the Lord was seeking to continue to impress upon his people the extreme seriousness of sin. And surely this is what it would teach us also. That sin is no light matter. That sin is extremely deceitful. It can deceive us so easily. And these sacrifices, the fact that they were continually offered and that blood was shed, there would have been a terrible stench, if nothing else. It was to remind them of the enormity of sin and how the wages of sin is death, as we have been reminded by a brother in prayer. This is surely something that we are to take on board and we cannot be light with sin. Because God does not look upon sin lightly. And all of these sacrifices during that time of feasting, the daily and the monthly sacrifices that were mentioned in Numbers 28 went on also. It was a continual amount of shedding blood, continually before the eyes of the worshippers, in order that this might be impressed upon them. And therefore, as also has been mentioned by one of the, the brethren in prayer, this is what we are to realize when we, when we read these unfamiliar passages to us and we wonder why are they there, we have to submit to the fact that this is the Word of God. The Holy Spirit, in His infinite wisdom, has inspired this for us, and it has been preserved for us, and it is ultimately for our own edification and our instruction. And surely, friends, it doesn't need for us to go to seminaries in order that we might understand. Here, the Word of God is teaching us the seriousness of sin. Secondly, and with this there is a note of hallelujah, all of these sacrifices, all of them have been fulfilled. All of them have been fulfilled by the Lord Jesus Christ, by his once for all perfect sacrifice. A perfect sacrifice, not of an animal, not of a perfect animal, but of a perfect Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And the fact that these sacrifices had to be repeated year after year after year would tell us clearly and plainly, although sin is an extremely serious matter that we cannot truly deal with ourselves, not even the blood of an animal could take away one of our sins. And all of these sins that had been committed 
And although all these sacrifices were offered and all these animals were slain and their blood was shed, not a single sin was forgiven. But when Jesus Christ came in the fullness of time and when he went to the cross and offered up himself as a once-for-all perfect sacrifice, sins were forgiven. And all of these sacrifices then, at that time, came to an end. There was no need for them whatsoever. Why? Well, because, obviously, you know, the once-for-all perfect sacrifice had been offered up. And once this perfect sacrifice came, it would be an insult to offer any other sacrifice. And we know that the work of Christ has been accepted. How do we know? Well, we go to the tomb. And what do we find? Christ is risen. The fact that he arose would demonstrate and teach us and remind us that God found his sacrifice acceptable. And that's why we have a gospel to proclaim today. That's why we can tell all, young, old, religious or irreligious, we can tell them in the name of the Lord our God that there is forgiveness in Christ Jesus the Lord because he is the one who has dealt with sin. His sacrifice does take away sin. This is what makes his sacrifice absolutely unique. All these poor animals what were they doing? They were pointing ultimately to that perfect sacrifice that would come in the fullness of time. And friends, we're here tonight. We don't have to go through with all these sacrifices. It's all come to an end. The book of Hebrews would tell this message to us very plainly and pointedly. What does it say? I could quote many verses, but let me quote a couple. One from Hebrews chapter 9, verse 26. For then must he often have suffered since the foundation of the world, but now once in the end of the world hath he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And chapter 9 is outlining the supremacy of the priesthood of the Lord Jesus Christ. But now, once in the end of the world, hath he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Friends, we should cry out, Hallelujah! God in Christ has dealt with sin. Sin has been dealt with. And we look now for the Lord Jesus Christ to return, not to deal with sin, but to deal with a sinner. And that's why we proclaim the gospel. Because this is the day of grace. This is when full and free salvation is, is offered in the gospel through what Christ has done. Sin has been dealt with. There's a note of triumph in real biblical Christianity. We're setting forth a Savior who has done something, who has achieved something. He has satisfied the just demands of God's most holy and inflexible law. 
And he has stood in the room and place of sinners, paid the price that was rightly theirs as their substitute. Another verse from Hebrews chapter 5 verse 9. And being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey him. Did you notice the word there, or words, eternal salvation? This is what Christ has done. Christ has secured the eternal salvation of his people. What's required of us? We are to believe upon him. We are to receive him as Lord and Savior. That's what it says. And to all them that obey him. And we must be careful that we don't fall into the trap that the, some people in the early church would try to, to bring the new believers back to the Old Testament, back to the old uh, ceremonial law. We must be very careful. That's what Paul would tell the, the Colossians in chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. Let no man therefore judge you in meat, or in drink, or in respect of an holy day, or of a new moon, all of the Sabbath days, which are a shadow of things to come, but the body is of Christ. You know, the early church was troubled with Judaizers who were wanting the new converts, the, the Gentile Christians, to embrace circumcision and the ceremonial law of which this is a part of. And they were basically saying, before you can be saved, you must become a Jew and you must adopt these Jewish practices. Paul would have nothing, none of it. Let no man therefore judge you in meat or in drink or in respect of an holy day. Why? Because all of these things have been fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. And this, friends, truly should... Instill in us a real note of joy in what Christ has done. In the New Testament, in John chapter 7, we find the Lord Jesus was at one of these Jewish feasts. And if I have read John chapter 7 correctly, it would tell me that the feast he was there was the feast of the tabernacles. That feast that lasted for one Sabbath to another Sabbath. And it says in John chapter 7 verse 37 and 38. In the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried saying, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. He that believeth in me, as the scripture has said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. There they were at the feast. And who was there at the feast but the Son of God? And he was calling people to himself that they might see the feast actually pointed to him and to the glorious salvation that he was about to secure. If any man thirst, let him come unto me. Maybe that's our position tonight. Maybe we are thirsty. Maybe we are hungry. Maybe we know there's something wrong in our lives. Maybe we recognize there's something missing. Do we hear the call of the Lord Jesus Christ? 
If any man thirst, let him come unto me. If any man has a need, what is that need? The need is ultimately to, to have our sins dealt with. And to be reconciled to God. As we have read these two chapters, if we will be honest with ourselves, and indeed we should be honest with ourselves, because ultimately the Lord does know our hearts and we can hide nothing from him. We read chapters like this and we struggle with them. They are somewhat a burden to us. We would far rather be in the Gospels or we would far rather be looking at one or two of the epistles. But we have this word here and it is, if we're honest, a burden to us. Friends, if it's a burden for us to read it and to maybe meditate upon it, what must it have been like for the worshippers themselves? What must it have been like for the priests to go through all these things, to perform all that was required of them? These things ye shall do unto the Lord. And we know from other scriptures how it was vitally important that all of these things were done correctly and orderly. If we find this a burden, think of our poor Old Testament brethren, our believers in the Old Testament, how it must have been a burden for them. And therefore, we rejoice that we have been set free from this by the Lord Jesus Christ. I allude again to the, the problem that was in the early church when the Judaizers wanted the early converts, particularly the Gentile converts, to be circumcised and to obey the ceremonial law. There was a great gathering in Acts chapter 15. And Peter was telling how he was the one who proclaimed the gospel to Cornelius and how the Holy Spirit came upon that Gentile congregation like it did on the day of Pentecost. And he goes on to say, Now therefore, why tempt ye God to put a yoke upon the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? Here is Peter talking about the ceremonial law and all that it contains. How it was a yoke that they were not able to bear. Well, here we are tonight, New Testament Christians in the 21st century. We have been freed. We have been delivered. We no longer have this. Surely, therefore, this should be a great sense of joy around us because of this. That's why I've, I have entitled the sermon, Joy in Believing. Here we have feasts. Yes, we know there were serious elements in the feast. Verse 7, for instance. And ye shall have on the tenth day of the seventh month an holy convocation, and ye shall afflict your souls. And verse 35. 
On the eighth day ye shall have a solemn assembly. But they were feasts. There would have been solemn moments, that's true. They would afflict their souls, that's true. And it would be a solemn gathering. Indeed, it would be very solemn to see all these animals being slain and slaughtered with their bloodshed. But they were feasts. And they were there to enjoy what God has done for them. And they were to delight in God's provision for them. In other words, there was joy in their believing. There was joy in serving the Lord in their set feast. Oh, there wasn't levity and lightness like the world has. We're not saying that for one moment. But there was real joy. And I put it to you, friends. This joy should be a hallmark of our Christian walk and our Christian discipleship. Yes, we know that in Christianity we deal with very solemn matters. We deal with sin. And we rejoice that God has made provision for our sins in the Lord Jesus Christ. But we deal with very, very solemn matters. Sin, death, judgment, heaven, hell, eternity. These are the things that we deal with. But having Christ as our Lord and Savior who has dealt with all these things, surely then there should be an element of joy in our believing. That's why we sung the two psalms we have sung. There's an element of joy in these psalms. Verse 7, for instance, of Psalm 4, the metrical verse, and we just sung, Upon my heart bestowed by thee more gladness I have found than they, even them, when corn and wine did most with them abound. More gladness I have found. Here was David. More gladness I have found. Where did he find it? He found it in his relationship with the Lord his God more than all of those who have ample barns full of this world's goods. He has gladness with the Lord his God. Friends, can we identify with this? Is this something of our experience? Jesus, speaking to his disciples, not long before he went to Golgotha, Ye now therefore have sorrow, but I will see you again, and your heart shall rejoice, and your joy no man taketh from you. Can you enter into that experience? Is this something that you can testify? Your heart shall rejoice. He had told them he was going to go away. They would be sad. And indeed they were sad. But they saw him again. And their hearts rejoiced. And your joy no man taketh from you. This is truly the experience of the Christian. The world cannot take away the joy that Christ gives to you. He can, they cannot. Therefore we are to have joy in believing. Paul, that serious, serious theologian. What does he say? 
in Romans chapter 15 verse 13, Now the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing. All joy and peace? Is this not what the world longs for? Joy and peace? What are we surrounded with today? People are worried about the cost of living. They're worried whether they can eat or whether they can heat their homes. They're worried about this. They're worried about the, the war in the Ukraine. Everything's filled with worry. Now the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that ye may abound in hope through the power of the Holy Ghost. Here is real joy and believing. Here is real biblical Christianity. These things we're looking at, they were feasts. They were not wakes. They were feasts. Yes, there was a serious element. And that's not to be dispensed with. But they were to enjoy communion with God. And God would have them joy in believing. I'm nearly finished. 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 8. Here he's talking about the Saviour. Whom having not seen. I haven't seen the Saviour. You haven't seen the Saviour with your physical eyes. We trust you've seen the Saviour with your eye of faith. But Peter's talking to these poor Christians, many of whom were slaves, whom having not seen, ye love. Ye love. Do you love the Lord Jesus? In whom, though now you see him not, yet believing, ye rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. There's that element of real spiritual joy. Ye rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. Well, one final thought, and it's just a bullet point. There's something else that we can derive from this chapter concerning the feasts. The nation of Israel needed the priests and their ministry. They needed them. They were the ones who would address, the, address God for the congregation. They would intercede. Their ministry was absolutely vital. They and they alone could offer up these sacrifices. We know the once for all perfect sacrifice has been offered up. But we have a great high priest today. We have a high priest who is greater than all the other high priests put together. We have an eternal high priest. We have the Lord Jesus Christ. And we rejoice in his sacrifice. But we also rejoice because he intercedes for us today at the right hand of God. And without his intercession, we would never be brought to glory. What a wonderful thing it is to have one in our nature, in heaven, interceding for us, knowing our faults, knowing our weaknesses, having lived upon this earth, he's able to sympathize with us. 
The Old Testament church needed the priest and the high priest. We need our high priest. And we rejoice that we have one who has an eternal priesthood. Joy then in believing. Amen. And may God be pleased to bless his word.